In just a few moments, I'm going to read you some words from the psalmist. And just to pick up on what John Paul said, whether you're here this morning and you are profoundly thankful, or whether you're just confused or frustrated or somewhere in between or a mixture of both, when we gather for worship, God is turning our attention to what is right about Jesus. Hear this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are in the presence of God. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. We're going to look at this whole chapter this morning. But I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5. I think that's what I have. And then 35 through 41. Actually, 1 through 7, I think, is what I want to do. Yeah. All right, John chapter 9. We're going to take in this whole chapter together. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, it may be good to keep those open because I'm going to refer to a lot of verses that I'm not reading before you today. But this is God's word. Listen to this. This is a great story, one of the best that John has. As he passed by, this is talking about Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Is that as far as I have on the screen? Yeah. All right. We'll skip to verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the, this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we look at this chapter and this story together, that you would help us to know, to feel, that you are exclusively dealing with us. That you would not allow us to think of others. That you would help us to see how your word is living and active. It cuts deep into who we are so that we might come alive in Christ. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you do above and beyond what we ask or think. You have your purposes and your plans on what you're going to do. So Lord, we know that whatever we ask, we submit to you knowing you will do what you think and what you know is best. So we thank you that we can request and submit. We can ask and then we can wait upon you. 
So Lord, glorify yourself, whatever that means. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that we all find it so easy in our lives to look for who to blame instead of recognizing that good can come out of the most difficult things of life? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to immediately want to try to blame someone else or something for what's happened rather than recognizing that good things can come out of very, very, maybe even the most difficult things? Have you ever noticed that? I was thinking about that and this week, thinking about this passage and even thinking about my own insurance company. Man, they are quick to figure out who to blame, right? It's kind of their deal. I was even thinking about the fact that in the world in which we live in, the culture that we are a part of, there's no such thing as losing anymore. Only should have won. That's what makes it so profound when we know coaches that are able to interact with their team when they have a very, very difficult loss and they can say, through their team, but look, but, but this is the good that's happened. This is what we know now, right? Because so often, so often we don't blame something else. So often we're not used to thinking about good things that can happen from the most difficult things. This got very personal for me thinking about my own car. I mentioned this to you several weeks ago. I told you that one of my cars, the engine in one of my cars blew up. Remember me telling you that a few weeks ago? And you know what happened? Instead of the dealership honoring the warranty that they gave me, they wanted to blame me. I don't know if that's happened to you. Not necessarily with your car. I hope it hasn't. But have you ever noticed how we have this tendency to want to immediately go to blame and who to blame rather than Thinking about how good things can happen from the most difficult things in life? John 9 is all about this. John 9 is all about that exact thing. Wanting to blame versus recognizing there are good things that can happen. And let me tell you, this story and this struggle that we have is as old as Adam and Eve in the garden. What we're reading about in John 9 and thinking about today has been going on for thousands of years. This is nothing new. It's nothing new for us. It was nothing new in the first century. It was nothing new for thousands of years before that, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So let's dive in, and let's think about blame shifting, if you look in your bulletin, versus good news. Let's dive in and make sure that we get our Minds around the story and what happens, because I didn't read the whole chapter to you. So here's the story. Look at verse 1. Jesus sees a blind man, a man who has been blind from birth. If you look at verse 8, he's actually a beggar, which meant that he had to spend his time strategically positioning himself so that he could come across the most amount of people, so that hopefully, statistically, crying out to a larger number of people, they would inevitably help him. Whether that's transportation 
Whether that's giving him food, whether that's giving him money, whatever it is, he was a beggar. And he was blind. And he had been that way from birth. And Jesus sees this guy and he goes over to him. Isn't that amazing? We're going to come back to this. But in and of itself, Jesus recognizes hurting people. How many times in the gospel accounts do we read of Jesus zeroing in on people who are struggling and hurting? He is drawn to them. And he goes to this man and he spits on the ground. Jesus does. Jesus literally spits on the ground, bends down, makes a little bit of mud with how much he spit. And he takes that mud and he puts it on the eyes of this blind man. He touches him. And then he says, go wash in this pool at Siloam. Go wash at this pool. So the man goes to the pool and he washes, he rinses, and lo and behold, he can see. For the first time in his life, he can see. And it's at that point that the story seems to indicate that Jesus walks away. He goes away. He disappears. And not surprisingly, this young man who's been blind from birth goes to see his family and all of his neighbors. You can imagine the joy and excitement that would be uh, exuding from his life because now he's able to see. And he goes back and tells his mom and dad and his neighbors and he says, look, I can see you. And they start questioning him. Some people doubt who this is. And he's relentlessly saying, no, it's me. It's me. As a matter of fact, some of the neighbors get so disturbed that they ended up taking him to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were struggling with who Jesus is, what he's doing, and now they hear this story of this blind man being healed. So they take him to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees begin to question this guy because they're not really happy about what's going on. They question him once, and then they dismiss him, and then they go after this man's parents, and they summon his parents, and they start interrogating his parents, and they start saying things to his parents like, is this your son? Was he blind from birth, and now can he see? And the parents are very reserved in how they answer the Pharisees. Verse 22 and 23 tell you they were so careful in what they said because they felt all this pressure. Because if they were to disagree with the religious establishment, they would be kicked out. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? So they answer the Pharisees in this basic way. Oh yeah, this is our son, and he was blind from birth. How he can see now, we don't know. He's of age, he's super articulate, you can ask him. I'm serious, you can read it. So you know what happens? They leave, and the Pharisees go back to the guy, and they summon him a second time, and they start pressing him more and pressing him more. And you know what ends up happening? He ends up saying lots of things. Primarily, I can see. And they get so angry that they remove him from their religious gatherings. You can't come back anymore. They unsynagogued him. <laughs> they kicked him out. That's what they did. And it's after that that Jesus then finds him. 
Now, if you go back and read the story, which I encourage you to do, this guy is something else. I've left out a lot of details just because I would love for you to go back and read it yourself and read how amazing this young man is. I mean, he, he was a character. He is appearing before the religious establishment that has all kinds of power that they can, they can effectively put him outside the normal social things of life, which would affect his business, it would affect who he is, it would affect him in, all, in every way possible. And every time he appears before them, he is just straight up with them. I mean, if, there, if, there's, a, if there's any part of you that loves it when the, when the establishment is wrong and people point that out, man, you will love this guy. They ask him at one point in this, um, for the second or third time, who, who did this to you? What happened? And the guy says, I have no idea who this guy was, but this is what I know. I was blind and now I see. He is relentless with this. And they keep trying to find angles on how to flip him and how to get him to speak against Jesus and how to say something that didn't happen. Like one time he appeared before them and they said, they said, young man, give glory to God. This man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. In other words, they're saying, young man, why don't you give glory to God for the fact you can see, but will you agree with us that Jesus is a sinner? And his response is basically, you might guess what it is, I have no idea whether this guy's a sinner or not. I was blind and now I see. He even presses them further and says, you keep asking me the same questions. Do you want to be one of his disciples? Which if you know anything about the Pharisees and Jesus, the majority of them were just irate. And they were, as we've looked at through John so far, they were even looking for opportunities to kill Jesus. Man, he is just dead on. He is not afraid of them at all. And he probably is clueless about what's going on. And he certainly wasn't afraid to say what he did. He wasn't afraid of the consequences of that because it ended up meaning that he got kicked out. Now, think about the reactions to this blindness. That's the story. But think about the reactions to this blindness. Look at the first, look at verse two. Some see it and they say this. The disciples ask Jesus, who sinned? Right from the start, what's happening? Who's at fault? Who's at fault, Jesus? You saw this blind man, we want to know whose fault it is. Did this guy sin or was it his parents? Do you read that? Do you see that in verse 2? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, this man is blind either because he did something or his parents did something. They are playing the blame game. Whose fault is this? Really connects with us, doesn't it? Again, how many times are we always looking for someone to blame? The blind man's sin? Let's, let's, let's tease this out. Let's tease both of these options out for a minute. Did the blind man sin? In other words, he's saying, if you have this disposition thinking that you're at fault for everything, look inside. Was the blind man sin? Did he sin? Is that what caused this? Meaning, Look inside, you are responsible for everything, you must have done something. 
This is representative of those of us that live our lives basically who have a tendency to pay far more attention to the bad things about us and who have a tendency in which to take individual responsibility for everything. Matter of fact, there's a whole story about this in the Bible. It's Job. Job has all kinds of catastrophic things that happen to him. And you know what his friends say? Multiple chapters over and over. Job, you must have done something. Job, you sure you didn't do anything? Job, we think you did something. That's this mentality. Where we think individually we have done everything wrong. And it's our fault that things happen. That what we specific, something that we have specifically done brings this particular thing upon us. On the other side of that, what was it him? Was it the parents? Must have been someone else. This is the view in which we relentlessly look outside of ourselves. It must be someone else. There's always someone else to blame. That this mentality has a tendency to think I've done what I'm supposed to do and things are still getting worse. So there must be someone else to blame. That could be God. And if that's the case in which we start blaming God for things, oftentimes that reveals a life with God that's centered around negotiations and bargaining. Thinking, you know what? I do mine. I do my part and I get rewarded for what I'm supposed to do. This way of living life has a tendency to think super highly of the self. And everything is someone else's problem. And you know what? There are some that even turn these two ways of looking at life into entire life, whole life systems. And even at times present Christianity this way. As if your success through Your excess in life comes from your individual effort? That if you're sick or something is happening in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith? Or if you're down and out, it's because you're not working hard enough. The change happens through you and your effort and your power to make things happen. And the other side that turns this into a whole life system oftentimes presents Christianity as if, you know, we're just all victims. And somebody else is to blame for everything that's going on with me. And you know what? Both of these are crushing. Absolutely crushing. And if you've been under that kind of expression of Christianity, I'm sorry. Because it is crushing. Thinking that life is just about everything that I do and I can change things and I can make things happen. If something isn't going my way, I'm not having enough faith. Or if you've never been taught to take responsibility for something, that something's always someone else's fault, both of these result in promoting pride and superiority and thinking that we're better than other people because we had this happen or we didn't have that happen. It's really, really centered on man. And you know what Jesus says to this? Look at verse 3. Neither one. 
This man's born blind. They say, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, neither one. This happened to him so that the works of God would be made manifested in him. This happened so that the power of God would be seen through him. Jesus says there's another option. God wants to display something in this man. You see, the relationship of suffering in our lives, the relationship of suffering to sin, is actually really complex and really nuanced. It's not easy. It's not easy to figure out. So hear me. I only have a few minutes and I want to bullet point this stuff because it's really important. The relationship between sin and suffering is really, really complicated and nuanced. Hear this. Yes, ultimately, there is suffering in the world because of our rebellion against God. That is a fact. That is biblical. That is true. When we rebelled against God through Adam and Eve, things don't work like they're supposed to. And everything is broken. The reason why we have all this is ultimately because we rebelled against God. That is true. But know this. It is never wrong whenever something is going on in your life. It is never wrong in which you're going through a hard season of life, a valley, suffering, pain, a challenge, whatever it is. It's never, ever wrong to search your heart. It's never wrong to do that. It's never wrong to ask God to search your heart to discern what is going on. And it's also just as important that we always assume that things are far more broken than we think. That things are far more broken than we could have imagined or thought. It's true. If you are a follower of Jesus, suffering is not punishment. If you have entrusted your life to Christ, suffering is not punishment because all of the punishment fell on Jesus. The suffering that you are enduring, the challenges that you are enduring, it's not punishment. God doesn't take two payments for one debt. He doesn't take a payment from Jesus and then a payment from you. He takes the payment from Jesus. So whatever you're going through, it's not punishment. But suffering is there in our lives and in our loved ones and in those that are around us. Suffering is governed by God so that his redemption is played out. So that his grace is worked more deeply. So that his power is displayed through us. And that is good news. That is really good news. I heard a story in the not too distant past about a man named Heath. And it was a story of how he grew up uh, in an incredibly difficult home. He was... He was abused by his mother, broom handles used inappropriately, she was an alcoholic. When he was very young, there were many days in which he went without food, 
There were even times around Christmas in which he was actually put out of the house into a snowstorm. This was when he was like eight or nine years old. Things got so bad, as you can imagine, that social services came in and had to place him in a different spot. He was even, one of his mom's boyfriends even actually cared for him and and loved him. And because of the struggles that his mom had, that boyfriend of hers actually took custody of Heath and his brother. And he lived with that man for two years, I think. And he said, those were the greatest two years of my life. And my mom went to rehab and she got sober. Things got cleaned up. And she actually fought for custody and took me and my brother, Heath was saying, back, away from the man that actually loved us. He won them, he won, she won her two sons back. And then she continued to abuse them and abuse them and abuse them. When he was 14, someone talked to him about the love of a heavenly father. And someone talked to him about the redemption that is in Jesus. And that changed Heath's life. And he always wanted someone to just love him and care for him and provide for him. So the message of Jesus was something to him that was absolutely extraordinary and unique and real and new. Because he hadn't had that. So he became a follower of Jesus. And he continued to pursue the Lord, study. He ended up actually going into the ministry. But he had this one time in his life in which he was reading through the scriptures and it talked about not hating your brother. And his testimony is that for the first time in his life, he felt like Jesus was actually taking something from him that belonged to him. Because he felt like he was justified in being angry toward his mom. And yet Jesus was telling him, yet you need to forgive. And that meant that it sent him on a trajectory of having to go and talk to his mom and share the gospel with her and love her and deal with forgiveness. And he did. And he shared the message of forgiveness that he had experienced with his mom over like a 10-year period. And finally, she came by God's grace to be found in Jesus. And then after that, he thought, you know, I should go and track down my biological father because he didn't even know who he was. So in his 30s, he went and tracked down his dad. And he showed up at his dad's door, and he was terrified. His dad answered the door, and he said, Dad, I want you to know I have nothing against you. I want nothing from you. I just want you to know that God has been merciful to me in my life. And I'm a different man today. And I hold nothing against you. And you know what his dad said? His dad said, God found me a long time ago too. And I struggled because I didn't know what to do and to reach out to you or not, so obviously I haven't. But I want you to know that I followed your career. And your ministry has been profound in my growing in the Christian faith. And Heath said, my testimony is one of abuse and suffering and trial, but it's really not that at all. It's really a message about how God's grace is so powerful that it takes those things and works them for good. That God can even take abuse and suffering 
and trials and make believers out of that. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that this man is blind because God wants to demonstrate his power through this man's life. Do you see? Jesus, who can we blame? And Jesus says, no one. This is for the power of God. And that's good news. And this whole story actually moves from a pretty captivating story to a living parable about what spiritual life really is. Think about this story. Look at this story. We have a dead giveaway that this whole story is a living parable. Look at verse 5. They say, Jesus, who's to blame for this? And he says, no one. God's power is going to be made manifest. It's going to be displayed in this man's life. And then he adds to that, look at verse 5. I am the light of the world. You know where that's taken from? One chapter back. Chapter 8, verse 12. Where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You see, what what Jesus is doing is he's saying this whole story is a living parable about how I am the light of the world. I'm going to repeat it, and then I'm going to illustrate it for you. Jesus is bringing light to a dark world. Light is represented in this story by seeing, and darkness is represented in this blind man's story of being blind. And Jesus comes to give sight. You see, everything in this story centers on Jesus. And he's saying our lives should too. You want to know what the applications of John 9 are? There there are a myriad of them. That our lives need to center on Jesus. That we, we need to stop blaming other things and people. Some of us need to take a little bit more responsibility. And some of us need to not take so much responsibility. And all of us need to believe that even in the most difficult things, God can do amazing things and use even the difficult things for good. You see, Jesus Jesus defines sight and blindness in this whole story. Those that recognize that they are spiritually blind actually are able to see. And those that refuse to admit that they're spiritually blind, Pharisees, They think they can see. They actually are blind. See, the good news is those who look inside and see themselves as bankrupt find life. They find life because they're losing it. The message of Christianity is not that good people who live good lives, get close to God. The message of Christianity is not clean yourself up and hopefully God will accept you. The message of Christianity is looking at yourself and see that you're bankrupt and that Jesus has done everything. The message is for the broken. The message is for sinners. Healing is a picture of salvation, grace. Look at what happens in the story. Jesus pursues this man. Jesus initiates with this man. 
Jesus notices hurting people and he doesn't ask the blind man anything. There are times that Jesus asks people questions, but not here. He just heals the man and then walks away. And then after the man is put out at the end of the story that I read for you, Jesus comes back and pursues him and talks with him again. And think about how much this would have touched this man's life, literally and figuratively. Jesus says to him, after he had been unsynagogued and kicked out, Jesus comes back to him and says, do you believe in the son of man? And the guy says, I don't know who that is, sir. And Jesus says, oh, you've seen him. You get that? When this man went to the pool and washed, who do you think the first person was that he saw? Jesus. And now Jesus is back in his presence. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, I don't know who that is. And Jesus says, oh, you've seen him. Don't you think Jesus might have said that with a smile on his face? And the man says, I believe. And he begins to worship. And your English translations ramp this up for you a little bit, although it's hidden. If you look in verse, I want to say this right because I can mess this up. I get numbers jumbled in my head. Verse 36. When Jesus questions him, the man says, sir, tell me who this is. And then in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. It's the same word. And the translators are telling you, when this guy came to Jesus in verse 36, he just saw Jesus as someone with respect. And after Jesus asked him that question and Jesus says, oh, you've seen him, he knows that Jesus is the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Same word, both places. Context determines everything. This man's life was changed. Jesus connected the dots. Jesus initiated. Jesus' grace. Boom, this guy worships. Because he knows that he's in the presence of the Messiah, the Son of God. Everything here centers on Jesus. The miracle itself, remember, they are not, and when you read through the Gospels, the miracles are not primarily to show you how powerful Jesus is. There are a zillion other ways that he could do that. The miracles show us how Jesus was going to use his power in the world. God created the world without disease and suffering. And when Jesus does these miracles and performs these miracles, what Jesus is doing is he is giving us a glimpse into what the world should be and what the world will be. And he's saying, that's where I'm going. That's the point of the miracles. To stir us up into glimpses of what Jesus is doing with his power, how he's using it. I got to stop here. Uh, John Paul put me on to this story. It is a beautiful fit for this. National Geographic follows two little girls from India. Their names are Anita and Sonia. They're very, very poor. Matter of fact, they are part of their representation of about 20 million people that are blind because they are malnourished. And National Geographic follows these two girls the week leading up to their surgery because there are doctors who have come from other parts of the world and Indian doctors themselves who are setting up these clinics in order to perform this relatively simple task of clearing up the film that's around the eye so that people can see. 
And National Geographic is following these couple girls the week leading up to that surgery. And they're talking about, their mother is talking about how much she's praying for their girls and how excited they are. Because without this clinic that's been set up, there's no way that they could ever afford to have this procedure. In American dollars, about $300. So the girls have this procedure. And the doctors do what is appropriate, and both of these young girls can see. They take the bandages off their eyes, and you can see their eyes are all wonky, and, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they can see. But you know what has to happen? Their mother, the voice of their mother, their mother has to interpret their reality. Their mother has to look at them and say, I'm your mom, this is your dad. This is the house that we live in. This is a tree. They can see, but they need their mother to interpret reality for them. You following me? John 9 is showing you those same things. Jesus is the only one who can make this man see. Jesus returns to this man and says, this is how you see properly. I'm the Lord. I'm the Messiah. Jesus not only could make this man see, Jesus could explain to him the reality, life, the world, everything. And that's what Jesus does for us. And that means that we don't have to live our lives trying to blame shift. It means that we can live our lives out of seeing everything through Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. And the power that he gives to live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you indeed make the blind see. And that is an incredible picture of our spiritual condition. That because of sin, we're blind. And without your grace, we won't see. So we ask that you would help us to see things as they really are. Keep us from living our lives as if we just have to blame everybody or blame ourselves. Bring us out of ourselves and into you again and again and again and again. This week, through our families, through our jobs, through our recreations, through whatever we're doing, connect your truth to us. For your glory, I pray. Amen. But as the people of God... What God wants you to leave here with is knowing that he has purpose to do you good. And that because of Jesus, your life won't be the same. Your life will be about him. So whether you're working, or playing, going through highs or lows this week, God is at work. And he will magnify Christ in your life. So hear this. The God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead because of Christ's blood, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. And it's even better. He's working in you what's pleasing in his sight. So that one day, he will get all glory. All glory to him. Our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in peace.